Thank you for that reading, James. It's uh, good to have the whole psalm read as we endeavour to get into a portion of that this morning. And it's been very good to be worshipping with you, to hear the common voice of God's people reading his scriptures and giving him worship in song. And so I thank you that I can join you and together we can be the body of Christ giving honour to God. Shall we pray as we come to the scriptures? Our Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to pause once again. It's good for us to do so, just to stop and remind ourselves of who you are and how great you are, and also to remind ourselves of your word and how great your word is. Lord, your word is free from error. Your word is 100% true. It's from you, and so it is good and it is relevant. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, just quieten our souls, free our mind from distraction, help us to focus, not for focus' sake, Lord, but because you are made plain in these words and we wish to see you and have our lives changed to be more like you. I pray for my speaking that indeed, Lord, my words will be your words and that your truths will shine forth this morning as it is you that we all wish to hear, wish to obey and wish to have change us. I commit this morning into your hands. Amen. So I'd like to start this morning by sharing a story with you. And it's a story I just found somewhere on the internet. I was trying to look up good sermon openings. And I found this random blog site by a girl called Roizen Brady. And uh, she's got a story. I'll just read it to you. It goes like this. Last night, I went for a gorgeous walk to breathe deep of the crisp Wakatipu air. You know where Wakatipu is? I don't know. Somewhere in Kiwiland. The crisp Wakatipu air and let my soul and spirit be soothed by the enlivening vibration of nature. And it was wonderful. The air was damp and cool. And my jacket was warm and cosy. My dogs were extremely excited and they both bounded up and down the track like puppies who had a bowl full of joy for breakfast. And I sauntered along, taking it all in, enjoying the bliss, the peace, the aliveness of everything around me, it was magical, except for one thing. I had a stone in my shoe, just a little one, nothing to write home about, and certainly nothing big enough that warrants its own blog post, but a wee stone it was, and in my shoe was where it had found itself. And there I was, walking along, choosing to fully be in the brilliance and beauty of the native bush and give myself over to the enjoyment of my walk, yet still I was complaining. I was trying to jiggle that little stone out of the way with each step. I was trying to make do with having a small bit of irritation. It was almost unconscious. It was almost as though I didn't even realize that I was making do. Until I did, and that's when it was even worse, because when I fully realized, oh, there's a stone in my shoe, that's kind of annoying, I still continued on walking with said stone in said shoe. And so there I was, in the most beautiful place on earth, in a magical moment in time, consciously choosing to compromise my entire experience of it with discomfort. I thought that was a pretty cool story to share with you this morning, but I thought there's a couple of truths in it which I find really applicable for us as people and indeed as believers. The first being that as people, we can tend to focus on the problems and on the negatives instead of the incredible beauty around us, no matter how magnificent that beauty may be. 
And also, the second truth is that we tend to be quite stoic as people, and when we have these problems, whatever they may be, we tend to make do and put up with it and continue on as if those problems weren't there, trying to make the best of the situation. And I think that also applies to us as Christians. Obviously, we have the beauty of God, His incredible character, His wonderful promises. They're around us at all times. And yet, how often during our week do we not focus on the beauty of God, but instead focus on our troubles and our problems and our needs? And real though they are, we neglect to focus on the beauty of God's character. And indeed, how often do we go about our everyday lives thinking, I'll just make do with this situation, I'll do the best I can, when really, we could stop and ask for help, and God would help us, as He's only too willing to do. And so this morning, it's my goal to try and help you as you need help in asking for help. Because we all need help, but the problem is we're not very good at asking for help, and we're not very good at admitting that we need help to be asking for help. So hopefully I'm going to help you with that this morning. That's the plan. Um, We're going to turn to Psalm 25, if you haven't done so already, and we see an expert here in King David. He had no qualms at all in asking God for help. And I had the whole psalm read out, even though I won't preach through it all this morning, because contextually it's very good to see everything in its place. And again, there's a lot of things going on in the psalm and a lot of things that David is presenting before God, but you could sum it up by saying he's asking for help. Now, those of you who were here a couple weeks ago will remember my structure of this psalm. Or maybe not, but let me remind you. And it looks a bit like that. That, as you can clearly see, is a beautiful bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. Right? You've got some pieces of bread... At the top and the bottom there, we've got some lettuce, we've got some tomato, and in the middle we have bacon. And this is the structure of the psalm. And so, I'm not sure how well you can see that. That's petitions. We have petitions in verses 1 to 7. It then launches into some praise in verses 8 to 10, a sudden shift. And then it shifts again in verse 11. You have a plea for pardon that stands out. Then we have praise again in verses 12 to 15, and we finish off with petitions. And so we have petitions, praise, plea for pardon, praise, petitions. And that structure comes out quite clearly in how the sentences are put forward and where the ideas are flowing from. So last time I was with you, I preached through the bread portions, the first seven verses and the last seven verses, and we looked at all of those petitions. We saw all these requests that David brought before God. And from it all, I urged you to get real, to be honest and open in your prayer life and bring everything before God. This morning, we're going to move into the lettuce and the tomato. We're going to move into the salad. And that's why I got James to read the passage, because he's vegetarian and he's a big fan of salad. So this is, this is particularly for you. Uh, so we're going to look at verses uh, 8 to 10, and we're going to look at verses 12 to 15. And it's going to be a bit funny, because I'm going to skip verse 11. That's not because verse 11 is unimportant. I'm going to give it its own sermon later on as we look at that bacon. And so as we come to this morning's passage, what I really want to urge you to do is get a grip on God's promises. And that's my title for this morning's message. Get a grip on God's promises. And so what I'm going to do this morning is just read the portion of the psalm that I'll be preaching through, which will be starting at verses 8 and reading through to verse 15. I'll skip over verse 11 and, Lord willing, deal with that later. So let's read Psalm 25, starting at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He teaches sinners in the way. The humble He guides in justice, and the humble He teaches His way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth, to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. Skip to verse 12. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. He himself shall dwell in prosperity. 
and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And so as we read just that section of the psalm, we see lots of promises. And so I'm urging you this morning to get a grip on God's promises. Now, what do I mean by get a grip on God's promises? Well, we use the phrase get a grip in everyday language. And if I saw Josh Medgard over there, he hasn't got his coffee, and if he's crying hysterically, what I'd do is I'd go up to him and say, get a grip. To get a grip is to control your reactions and to control your emotions. And it's something that's quite necessary for us to do in our everyday life, particularly as we consult the promises of God. And as we see these promises, we want them not just to be part of our head knowledge, but to be shaping the way that we react and we feel in given situations, given how wonderful these promises are. And so in these verses I've just read for you, I noticed three promises that David has a great grip on. And those are three promises that we also can use to inspire our individual prayer life. And after those three promises, you'll have a final application. And so those will be our points for this morning. And so without further ado, we'll get into our first point. So we're in the the salad section. That's just to remind you there, lettuce and tomato. Uh, But our first point is get a grip on the promise of God's character. Get a grip on the promise of God's character. And I just get this from verse 8a. Good and upright is the Lord. And that's, that's where I'm getting this from. Now, I like to call it the promise of God's character because God's character is consistent. And because the character that described God at the time of writing is the same character that describes him now and will continue to describe him through all eternity, his character is a promise that we can cling to. We know that the way God is will always be the way God is into the future. And so it's one of those things that gives us hope and gives us inspiration as we come to him in prayer. So his character is really a promise. This is what I'm like and this is what I am always going to be like. And how does David describe the Lord? He says, good and upright. Two words that I think sum up God's character nicely. And when I say that, I know that God is infinite and eternal in everything that he does and everything that he is, and so no two words sum him up perfectly. But as far as any two words go in summing up who God is, good and upright are very appropriate words. So God is good so he's, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's a God who seeks relationship. This is the God who went into the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and wanted to restore relationship unto them because he is good. And God is also upright. This is the God who is holy. We've sung of the fact that there's no stain of sin within him. He's completely blemish-free and he can't be in the sight of sin. And this same God had to judge Adam and Eve for their wickedness and judge the whole earth for their wickedness because he cannot tolerate sin. And these are two aspects of God's character which both describe him fully and cause us to be inspired as we come to him. If you consider the goodness of God, particularly in reference to prayer, hopefully passages like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 come to mind. And I'll paraphrase, but he says something along the lines of, Who among you, if your son asks you for bread, will give him a stone? Or if your child asks for a fish, will give them a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven 
give good gifts to those who ask. And it helps us understand how good God really is. If you consider your earthly father if he was good, or just if you didn't have a good earthly father, some earthly father who was good, their goodness has absolutely nothing on the goodness of God. The goodness of God far outshines any earthly goodness that we've ever seen. And that goes for his generosity in trying to bless his people as they ask him. God is fundamentally good. Or I could share with you the story of Rover the dog. I'm not sure if you've heard the story, but Rover was a dog and he had a very um, faithful, he was a very faithful dog to his master and he sat at his master's table. And sometimes when his master was eating, crumbs would fall onto the floor right before him and Rover would go up and eat those crumbs. But then one day his master decided to cut off a piece of beef. He put the beef on the floor and said, Rover, this is for you. And Rover went up, sniffed it, but didn't partake of it because he considered himself unworthy. And in a similar way as Christians, often we can present only a small request before God and consider ourselves unworthy of some of the bigger blessings that God wants to give. When really, we need to get a grip of God's character and realize that God is good. We should have no hesitation in bringing our true needs before God. And we all have needs, whatever they might be. Needs for comfort or for companionship or for faith or for guidance. We all have real needs and we should be inspired to bring them before God because He is good. The promise of His character is not just something that fills up our head, it encourages us to come to Him. Why wouldn't you come to a father who loves to bless his children who is fundamentally good? And so the promise of God's character inspires us to pray. But then we also remember that God is upright. He's good, and so we have confidence to come before Him and bring our requests. But He's also upright. And when we think of the fact that God is upright, we remember that He is morally pure, that He can't stand the sight of sin. And so what this does is it causes us to come in a right way and pray for the right things. When you remember that God is upright, you'll make sure that you approach Him reverently, remembering that indeed you are a sinner, but because of Christ you can come before God. You think of Christ as you remember God being upright, because Christ is the only reason that you can stand before God in the first place. Those of you who were saved, your sin has been dealt with and put on the cross. And so God is upright, He can still look upon you because of what Jesus has done. And so as you consider the fact that God is upright, it makes you give thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus, but then changes the way you pray. As you remember that God is upright, you pray for the right things. If I just remind myself, God is holy, God is perfect, God's standard is just, that's going to inform the things I pray for. There are certain things I wouldn't bring before God, silly things like praying for a a brand new Mercedes-Benz, because that would be completely inappropriate with God's character, with God's character of being upright. And so while we use His characteristics of being good to motivate ourselves to come before Him and pray, we use His characteristic of being upright to motivate ourselves to pray in the right way and for the right things. But what a good truth. God is good and upright. 100% love, 100% morally pure. And when we get a grip on this promise, it changes our prayer life. But this isn't the only promise that we see in these verses. We also see another promise, and so I urge you to get a grip on the promise of God's communication. Get a grip on the promise of God's communication. 
And we get this from verses 8, 9, and 12. And so I might jump around a bit. I'll try not to make it too confusing. Let me just read quickly verses 8, 9, and 12. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners in the way. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. That's verses 8, 9, and 12. Hopefully you're able to follow along. Why I've picked these three verses is because they all have a common theme. They all use the word teach. And each verse is going to look at a different aspect of the person who is taught by God. And so if you look at verse 8, what kind of person does God teach? Verse 8 in the second half says, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. And so the first characteristic of the person who receives God's teaching or the person who receives God's communication is sinner, which might come as a surprise. And if people are unfamiliar with Christianity, it might come as a real shock that God is promising to teach sinners. Shouldn't people try and strive to a certain level of goodness to be able to get the teaching of God? But actually, it's the opposite. It's the same theme you see throughout the Bible. As Jesus said, Mark 2:17. it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so God loves to work with the needy. And this is a real encouragement for us because we have needs. When we go to pray before God, we don't need to consider ourselves unworthy because He teaches sinners. He teaches those who have needs. And so He longs for us to come before Him. If you're a needy person, then you can come before God because you're the exact type of person whom God loves to teach. It's the sinners who God deals with. Now this doesn't mean, obviously, that God wants you to sin, but He wants you to acknowledge that you do sin. Because if you don't acknowledge that you sin, there's a plank in your eye and it'll blind you from some of the teaching that God wants to give you. But if you confess your sin, you'll have a right mindset and God will be able to work in your heart and cause you to see the wonders of His teaching. And so the first step here is you need to admit that you're a sinner because He teaches sinners in the way. But then you get to verse 9, and who else does God teach? And you'll see that He teaches the humble. So verse 9 reads, The humble He guides in justice, and the humble He teaches His way. Humble is mentioned twice there. Obviously, it's quite an important thing. And humility is something that really needs to characterize us if we want to be taught by God, if we want to be guided by God. If we want to have God speak into our lives, we need to make sure that we're humble. And it's a really difficult character trait for us to develop. Now, it shouldn't be, but it is. Those of us who have been Christians for a while, those of us who have been going to church for a while, can fall into the trap of thinking, I've got this, I, I know the Bible, I know it quite well, I've been taught so much, I feel like I have an excellent grasp, this is a good state that I'm in. And yet, God promises to teach the humble. If we wish to be learning new things about God from His Word, we need to approach His Scriptures with humility. We need to acknowledge, there are things I still don't know fully. There are passages I can't quite reconcile with the correct interpretation. There's applications out there that I haven't fully applied to my life. When we have this attitude of humility, it's then that God is able to work in our life. If you come with a prideful attitude to the things of God and ask to be taught, you're not going to see any of His wonderful teaching. And that's not because the Bible doesn't have wonderful teaching to offer, 
It's because God teaches the humble. And so when we're praying for guidance, and when we're praying for God to teach us, we need to make sure our own lives are cultivated by humility so that we can see that which God would have us see. The humble he guides in justice, and the humble he teaches his way. And then if you skip down to verse 12 again, and we see that God doesn't just teach sinners, and he doesn't just teach the humble, but verse 12, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. And so we see this last characteristic that someone who fears the Lord is the person whom God teaches. The fear of the Lord. So what does that mean? Well, we sung about it a little bit earlier. To fear God is to revere Him, uh, to see Him as holy, to recognize Him as great. And particularly as we're talking about teaching, to fear the Lord is to recognize His wisdom, to recognize that He is the fount of all knowledge, that He is the one God who is true and knows all things. Our God is the God who had the ideas of everything from rainbows to redemption before the world was created. And so we acknowledge Him as the only true wise God. We sang this morning, who has given counsel to the Lord? The answer being clearly no one, because He alone is wise. And as we remind ourselves of this, as we fear the Lord and praise Him for His high attributes and for the fact that He alone is the true source of all wisdom and all knowledge, then we come rightly. We come with a teachable spirit. We acknowledge, Lord, You are the one who knows all things. You are the one who can teach me. And so that appropriate fear helps us to be taught. It's part of the promise of God's communication. And hopefully you've noticed in verses 8, 9 and 12 that there's a progression, that all three characteristics of the person who's taught tie in together really nicely. So verse 8, God teaches the sinner. And so we have to admit that we're a sinner. Verse 9, God teaches the humble. If you admit you're a sinner, that should keep you humble because you recognize your place before God. And how should a sinner who's humble come before God? A humble sinner comes with reverence and fear, knowing that there's nothing in themselves from which they can gain understanding, but it all comes from God. A proverb comes to mind, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And may we be those who do go to God for understanding and rely on Him as opposed to relying on what we ourselves know or what we ourselves think we know. And this truth that God teaches us, even though we're sinners, it helps us to view Him in a right way. It helps us to become more sober-minded as we recognize our weakness, but God's ability to provide. But it also helps us to rejoice when we recognize that even though we are helpless, even though we have great needs, even though we are unworthy in a sense, God would love for us to come before Him to ask for guidance and teaching and to show us the way. And so we rejoice in that, even though we're sinners, when we humbly come before Him and give Him the fear that He deserves, He will give us guidance and teaching. And that's the promise of God's communication. It inspires us to bring our requests for guidance before Him in the right way and to cultivate humility within us as we acknowledge our sin. And so we've seen the promise of God's character, the promise of God's communication, and before the final application, there's a third promise, and so I urge you to get a grip on the promise of God's covenant. Get a grip on the promise of God's covenant. And again, I have to jump around a little bit here. We'll get this from verse 10, as well as verses 13 and 14. 
So let me read verse 10, 13, and 14. Please follow if you can. Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and testimonies. Verse 13. He himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. So we have the the promise of God's covenant here. And it's a really interesting word, the word covenant. It's mentioned twice, verse 10, verse 14. So we know that the covenant was at the forefront of David's mind. And when you think of the word covenant, it's really helpful to have a certain chapter in mind. And that chapter is Deuteronomy 28. Because Deuteronomy 28, it gives you a really good understanding of the whole Old Testament, really, if you can understand what's going on there. What is this covenant? And so in Deuteronomy 28, if I can summarize, you have God making a covenant with Moses and with all of Israel. And God's covenant basically is this. Israel, if you obey, I will bless your socks off. But if you disobey, I will curse you. And if you keep disobeying, you'll be booted out of the land. And that's outlined in greater detail with specific blessings and specific cursings, but that's the gist of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, a very helpful chapter to know when we see the word covenant in the Old Testament after Moses, because that's what it's referring to. Anytime you read any of the prophets, they're basically just holding up placards that say, Deuteronomy 28, obey and be blessed, disobey and you'll be cursed. This is the promise that God made with Israel. It applied specifically to all of the Israelites, all of the Jews, from the time of Moses, basically all the way up to the time of Christ. We're ushered into the new covenant, but that old covenant applied to a lot of people for a long time. And David is one of them, and he remembers that now. And so when you read, I'll go to verse 13 first, when you read that it says, he himself shall dwell in prosperity, we have a proper lens to view that through. This prosperity, yes, um, does in part refer to some literal prosperity, check out Deuteronomy 28, but it also refers to people under that old covenant. The word covenant being mentioned twice in this psalm points us in that way. And the word prosperity actually does appear in Deuteronomy 28 in verse 11. And if you read that, it'll say something along the lines of, um, to those who diligently obey, the Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb. And so what it's mentioning in Deuteronomy 28.11 is that God will prosper you physically by giving you lots of children. Again, this is God's specific promise from himself to the people of Israel in the time of the Old Testament. But what a wonderful promise that is. And David rightly rejoices when he considers God's covenant and when he considers God's prosperity. He says there in verse 13 this exact idea. His descendants shall inherit the earth. He's rejoicing in God's covenant that God promised, among many other blessings, that those who obey him will be blessed with children. And so David rightly rejoices. And we look back and we acknowledge the faithfulness of God to his people through his covenant and we rejoice with David even if that exact promise is not for us in the new covenant. But having said that, while we rejoice with David, if you look at verse 10 and verse 14, those offer more spiritual applications under the old covenant, which we can find true application for this morning. Have a read of verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so what God is saying uh, to his old covenant people, the old covenant Jews, is that if you obey me, then whatever path you take will be filled with mercy and will be filled with God's truth. 
And you can rejoice in that mercy and you can rejoice in that truth because I will bless you if you obey me. And while we're not under that covenant, we certainly can rejoice in God's mercy and truth. In fact, living when we do and having what we have, we have an even clearer picture of God's mercy and truth. Because you think about what David or what some of the other Jews would know of God's mercy and they might you know, talk about the fact that God gave them law, uh, the fact that he delivered them from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, the provision of manna in the wilderness, and they would list all these examples of mercy. But as believers today, we have the absolute clearest picture of God's mercy when we look at Jesus on the cross. And so we can rejoice in God's mercy as we look back at his covenant mentioned here. And the same thing goes with truth. What truth did God give these old covenant believers? Well, they had the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And that was wonderful enough for David to launch into praise. But what do we have? We have 66 books of canonical scripture. So we have an even clearer picture of the truth that God offers. And so David could rejoice in God's mercy and truth as he looked at the covenant. But how much more can we rejoice in the mercy and truth given we've seen an even clearer picture of God's mercy and an even clearer vision of God's truth in our scriptures today. And so we rejoice in that as we get a grip on the promise of God's covenant. And then we skip down to verse 14. An interesting verse. Verse 14 reads, The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him, and He will show them His covenant. Now, the obvious question from this verse is what is meant by the secret of the Lord? And uh, I have to say, the secret of the Lord is not some mystery box up in heaven that you really want to know what's inside of it, and if you're good enough, He'll open the box and tell you everything that's going to happen in your life. That's not what the secret of the Lord is referring to. That's not how God's will operates. Um, I hope you don't do that in your own life. Think of God as withholding secrets that you can attain if you're holy enough. Instead, the secret of the Lord is referring to intimacy with God. It's referring to those people who are able to be in such a close relationship with God that he shares secrets, as it were, that he communes with them at an intimate level. The NLT will actually translate the phrase secret of the Lord as friendship with God, which is a good translation because that's the connotation being made. The secret of the Lord represents true intimacy with God. And we see similar thoughts conveyed when Jesus says um, in the upper room discourse in John, I no longer consider you my servants, I call you my friends. And what a mind-blowing truth that is. But it's the truth that needs some context, which is why I love verse 14 in Psalm 25. It doesn't just say the secret of the Lord is with those, it's with those who fear Him. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him. And so there's a, there's a connection here, or there's two parts of your viewing of God that must intertwine. And the first bit is fear Him. You need to fear Him, honour Him, revere Him, recognise Him as the great I Am the creator of all things, the one to whom all glory and power and honour are due. And you need to recognise him as that awesome, awe-inspiring God who is so much higher above you that you need to fear him. And when you recognise that, you better appreciate the friendship that God offers. It absolutely blows your mind that such a God would extend intimacy with you so that you could even share in his secrets, as it were. And so we rejoice that we're friends with God, but not in a 
ho-hum, we're mates and we'll just go out way. We rightly revere him, we fear him, and to those who fear him, the secret of the Lord is with those. And so we want to have that right high view of God so that we better appreciate the friendship that he does extend to his followers. That applied to David under the Old Covenant, and God works the same way now. If you want to experience God's friendship, you have to make sure that you revere him and honor him in a right way. And so David here in this covenant, he's looked back at some wonderful promises that God made to him as a Jew through the law of Moses, and he rejoiced in those promises, those promises of getting our children, but also those promises of mercy and truth and friendship with God. And we look back and we can rejoice that God has been faithful. Every single Jew under that covenant, God was faithful to. And we rejoice that God is merciful, full of truth, and extends friendship to us. And so all of this, as we've looked at verses uh, 10 to 12, and verses um, 13 to 14, um, and verses 8 and 9 as well, we've looked at all these verses, we've seen these three promises. Promise of God's character, promise of God's communication, promise of God's covenant. But then we get to verse 15, which I call the final application. And I'll just read verse 15 for you. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. Now verse 15, what is it saying? My eyes are ever towards the Lord. Well, it's not saying that David can see the invisible God, because no one can see God. It's just metaphorical language to say where his focus is. So if I'm in my classroom, sometimes I say, everybody eyes on me. In fact, I could probably say that now. Everybody eyes on me. And what I'm really saying is, I want you to focus on me, and I'll measure how much attention I'm getting by how many eyeballs are looking at me. And so, eyes on someone, um, looking to someone, it just refers to your focus. And I'm sure, as we've read the verses that we've read this morning, we could agree that David certainly had his focus on God. He was looking at God, he was looking at God's promises, he was looking at who God was, his focus definitely was on God. But verse 15 continues, For he shall pluck my feet out of the net. A confident statement that God would intervene in David's life and save him. And you might recall that David was being pursued by enemies, he was being hunted down, his life was on the line. But here in verse 15, we have a confident statement that God will deliver him from that. So why, you might be asking, have I separated verse 15 from all these other verses in the salad portion of the sandwich? And the answer is that it's very different. It's very different to those other verses. It's different because it's a lot more personal. You look at verses 8 to 10, you look at verses 12 to 14, and you see God's general workings. God's character is a general thing. He is always like that. Uh, God's promise of communication. He will always teach those who acknowledge their sinners are humble and fear Him. Or you go to look at God's covenant. He acted 100% according to that covenant to every single Jew under the old covenant, and he's just as faithful to the new covenant with us today. In other words, he's looked at the general, how God works in the world, and he's rejoiced as he's done that. But then you get to verse 15, and we have a statement that talks about David's specific relationship with God, his focus on God, his faith in God, and we have a statement about God's individual intervening in David's affairs. He will save David from the snare, from his enemies. And so what we notice here is that in light of all that's come before verse 15, in this middle portion, 
David is inspired to rejoice in what God will do. And then verse 15 has a massive change when you get to verse 16 because we launch back into those petitions. Remember that sandwich? You get to the end of verse 15, it's the end of the praise, and then there's a whole bunch of petitions again. And so this verse is really important because this is like the inspiration that motivates him again to launch his requests before God. And it's also important because it's the verse that looks back at who God is and how God works in a general sense. And so bottom line is, when you look back at how God works generally, it'll motivate you to pray specifically. When you look back at how God works generally, it'll motivate you to pray specifically. And this works with all the aspects of God that we've seen this morning. God's character. If you consider the character of God and meditate upon it and let it permeate your mind, if you truly knew what God was like as good, or at least strive to better understand what God is like as a good God, it'll motivate you to come before Him, remembering that He loves to bless His children. If you truly understand what it means when God is upright, it'll motivate you to come in the right way. Or if you consider God's guidance, if you want to pray for guidance, consider how God always works. How does God always teach? He teaches those who admit they're sinners, He teaches the humble, He teaches those who fear Him. And so considering how God works helps you to come in the right way and motivates you to bring your requests, knowing that just because you're needy and just because you're a sinner, that's not going to stop God from working in you and teaching you. And likewise, as you look at the covenant, many aspects to it, but as you consider uh, the mercy, the truth, even the friendship that God offers, such things inspire you to pray. And so David here in verse 15 acknowledges his personal relationship after looking at all the general dealings of God and then he's going to launch right back into shooting those petitions before God with full confidence because he's got a grip on who God is. He's got a grip on the promise of God's character. He's got a grip on the promise of God's communication. And he's got a grip on the promise of God's covenant. And I pray that it'll be the same for us this week. We know we have needs. We know that we tend to focus so much on our needs and not on God. And we also know that we tend to be stoic in the way we go about our life, trying to deal with it and make do, as it were. But I'm hoping that this psalm, and indeed the Word of God in general, and God's attributes in general, will inspire you to pray, to bring your needs before Him, knowing that God is interested in sinner you, in needy you, because that's how God works. He's always been that way, He always will be that way. And if we know who God is, if we know how God works, if we can cling to God's promises, it can inspire us to pray to Him and to ask for the help that we do all need. And I pray that will be a blessing to your heart this week. Shall we stand? And I'll close this morning by reading a benediction. The benediction this morning again is a, a prayer as well as a praise coming from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Saviour who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.